Welcome back to the Wheeler Centre's Fifth Estate podcast, where we poke and prod behind the scenes of politics, the media and culture. For this episode, we're in the midst of the 2015 Melbourne Writers' Festival. Our host Sally Warhaft is joined by journalists Barry Cassidy and Latika Burke to talk about what it's like to be a political reporter in Australia today. There is a lot wrong, of course, with our political culture right now and it certainly seems to me that the media is its part symptom, part cause, uh, but like politics more broadly, we know that the media has changed a great deal across the decades. Here to discuss this topic, we have, of course, Barry Cassidy. He's the host of ABC's Insiders program. He's one of Australia's best known and most experienced political journalists. Uh, In the late 80s, he was Bob Hawke's senior press secretary and advisor. And he's the author of The Party Thieves, which um, is indeed the real story behind the 2010 election. Uh, And if you haven't got it, uh, he's got another book out at the moment too called uh, Private Bill uh, in Love and War, which is uh, proof that even Barry uh, lets politics go sometimes. It's a beautiful (laughs) memoir uh, about his parents and uh, really lovely, lovely book. Latika Burke uh, is a political journalist for Fairfax. She's based in Canberra, and uh, previously she reported for 2UE Radio and also worked for the ABC. She's also uh, recently published uh, a book, and again, not politics. Might tell us something right from the start about (laughs) political correspondence. Um, And it's another uh, memoir about her journey uh, back to India after being adopted uh, from India uh, as a baby. Please welcome Latika and Barry. I thought uh, we should start by um, asking you, Barry, uh, about your start in journalism, because I know you are old enough to have been a cadet. And I don't think there are many cadetships anymore. So perhaps you can just uh, paint a bit of a picture for us about what it was like to start out, I think you were in 1969, Mm. uh, what it was like, the the, the culture of journalism. You weren't a political correspondent then, but I bet you were interested in it. Tell us a bit about Mm. that. Um, And just before I do, I I just want to clarify in in case you've got the wrong idea that we're talking about journalism then and now, and I hope you don't think that I'm here to talk about then and Latika's here to talk about now. Uh, You stole the joke, Barry, In the 1984 uh, presidential campaign, Ronald Reagan was asked about his age. He was 73 at the time, and he was debating Walter Mondale. And when he was asked about that, he said, uh, I will not, for political purposes, exploit my opponent's youth and relative inexperience. <laughs> I won't do that either because I'm terrified about what might happen when we get to talking about the digital era. <laughs> I'll do the best I can. Um, but look, when I started out in journalism, uh, it, it might surprise you, but I in fact had practically no interest in politics. Um, and politics was not part of my, my, my upbringing uh, at all. It wasn't until I was well into my 20s that, um, that I was forced to take an interest. Um, so I started at a, at a newspaper called The Border Mail in Albury. And it was just, it was a great beginning. It was, I think, better than perhaps anything that uh, RMIT could do in terms of experience because you get thrown in at the, at the deep end and you're asked to do so much right from the beginning. But I'll never forget it was in the first week when part of my round was to go to the town hall. And the mayor was a guy called Cleaver Bunton, who in fact became a senator uh, during the Whitlam years. And uh, he said, come in, laddie. And I sat down and he started dictating. And it was like he was dictating a press release. <laughs> Uh, the Mayor of Albury, Cleaver Bunton, said today, comma, and away he went. And I said, this is, this is beautiful. I cannot improve on this. And I would go back, type it out, and got my first story in the paper. Um, so it was a bit like that back then and, until I uh, learned the ropes. But no, my, the political stuff didn't come until I did police rounds, I did sports reporting, um, I did courts for about four years. And it was because of that that the, uh, the news editor at the time, a guy called Ian Baker, said what we need is somebody to cover the gallery in the Victorian Parliament. And back then they actually had gallery reporters who reported the, um, what, the events of what went on down below. And, and because I'd sat in the courts, 
and he felt I was accurate and fast, therefore I might be suited to this. And I was there for two or three days and uh, heard people like Jack Galbelli and Alan Hunt debating and I thought, how long has this been going on? I, <laughs> um, I took an immediate uh, likes to the thing and I just, I went back to night school and found out who was Prime Minister before Bob Menzies and, and, <laughs> and basically filled in all the gaps. And so I didn't come from a political background, I, I came to politics through that process. Well, journalism then was a trade, wasn't it? It wasn't a profession. There's so many things you've just said. You've mentioned names of people that mentored you or at least mm. um, put, put you in certain directions and so on and, uh, and not studying it. Latika, tell us about, about your uh, background because you, you, you were obviously born after email. <laughs> uh, tell us, tell us your, your road to to Canberra. <laughs> well, I always knew I wanted to be a journalist. Um, like Barry, I wasn't necessarily dead set on being a political journalist, but news was in my blood right from a very young age. I think at nine or 10 years old, I was telling my father what I thought of John Hewson's GST. Um, so I was a bit weird from the start. <laughs> and so I knew I was always going to do it uh, at this age Everybody goes to CSU in Bathurst if you really want to make your name in journalism and, and get a job quickly. And I became very frustrated at uni because I didn't feel like I was learning enough. And I completely agree with you. I think journalism is a trade. It's not something that you study. It's not a, a profession as such. I think it's absolutely something that people hand down these skills to you and teach you to write a good story, teach you uh, how to get into a, a good yarn. But it's also most instinctive. You've got to have that, I think, in your blood or it doesn't work. And um, I started just literally writing terrible six-par radio news stories for my local radio station in Bathurst. And by the time I'd finished my degree, I was uh, hosting the, the morning talk program there and, and was able to quickly make my jump to Metropolitan Radio at 2UE in Sydney, which a lot of graduates at that time had to kind of spend one or two years out in the country um, doing, you know, earning those stripes, but because I'd managed to combine that and do that at the same same time I was doing uni, I was able to kind of leapfrog ahead a bit. Mm. I want um, to, to hear from you, Barry. Let's leave aside for now the obvious technological changes, but in, in the, the decades that you've been, have been a political correspondent, what have been the, the major, the, the sort of cultural shifts that you've seen in your work and if, whether or not they've, they've come alongside major political moments, or if it's separate? I suppose the biggest change in my time has been the, uh, the move from um, marginal coverage to saturation coverage uh, of politics. Um, when I first went to Canberra in 1980, uh, there were 180 members in the press gallery, and only 25 of them were women. I think it's about 300 or 100 now, something like that, so the ratio has certainly improved. Um, but then um, I, we think still there, I think there were more women uh, possibly in the in the government then though is that possible yeah, certainly been, in the cabinet maybe there might have been more in cabinet <laughs> um, but then in 1980 we're still operating our film so there, there was no live coverage as such um, and there were no laboratories in Canberra either which meant that uh, the film had to be put on a plane and flown to Sydney, and then it would, the, the, the film would be processed in the lab for an hour before the, the editor would get hold of it. So the delay would be five or six hours. So anything that happened after about 11 o'clock in the morning wouldn't go to television, wouldn't go to air that night. Um, and so there was an enormous transformation through the 80s when we went from that situation in 1980. I think videotape was introduced with the commercial networks in about 83 and probably about four years after that while the ABC had all their industrial disputes about cameramen moving from film to videotape, which took years to resolve. Um, so, but that transformation through the 80s was enormous because it suddenly meant that you, that you were finally getting instant news or very close to it. Um, and, and so events that were happening in the afternoon were suddenly uh, accessible to people at night. Mm, mm. What about you, Latika, in a, in a shorter time frame, what's What's changed just in, in the time? Huge amounts, been? huge amounts. Um, when I started at 2UE, we were still carrying these kind of old cassette player recorders that you'd strap on and, and take around. That very swiftly changed into digital recorders. And now, I mean, it's as simple as putting your iPhone up with a little mic you might plug in. 
But even beyond that, um, obviously the, the social media revolution changed so much about reporting. But now, you know, we have Sky and we have ABC24 and we have all the live broadcasting that, that Barry says didn't exist before. What's also amazing is your own ability to be a broadcaster and live stream and periscope a press conference. It's changing so much faster uh, than even I anticipated. Did you always do uh, radio, TV and print, Barry, when you started out? Well, I was a print journalist for the first um, 10 years or so. And then uh, when I went to the ABC, you sort of pick up radio and television at the same time. When I was in Canberra, I was doing both. <clears throat> um, but quite apart from the, the technical changes, I mean, clearly the way that, that politics is covered has changed enormously as well. Um, and that started, I think, with Kevin Rudd and his approach to it seven or eight years ago. And everybody has signed up to the same approach since, Julie Gillard and now Tony Abbott. <clears throat> and that is that he was the first Prime Minister, I think, to take the view that every day was a separate political contest that had to be won. And so they lost this focus where governing the country was a longer-term proposition and every day became a contest. And that, that changes the way that you operate. Um, it means that it's like you're on, in an internal election campaign and that's not good for the running of the country. And it surprised me that Julie Gillard signed up to it in the same way that Kevin Rudd did. And it surprises me even more that Tony Abbott operates that way. He doesn't have this sort of manic um, approach that, um, at least I don't think he does, that, that Kevin Rudd had, where he had staff up at four o'clock in the morning, you know, working for two or three hours until other people came on stream. And, but we just saw this week about the talking points. That's something that Kevin Rudd's staff would put around. You'd have these junior press secretaries telling senior ministers uh, what to say, and they would nominate the minister to say it on that day. And now we find this week that the talking points are still a, a, an established part of the way that they operate. So. Um, that's new, and it really is new, and relatively new. By that, I mean in the last seven or eight years. And it's just not good for the way that, you know, there was a time when I think prime ministers spent most of their time focusing on running the country, and they would occasionally think about the media and their presentation, um, but now it's the other way around. What could undo that? What could unravel that? Or is it now so <clears throat> tightly coiled that it seems impossible? I think you can re reverse it fairly quickly. Um, I've heard Malcolm Turnbull talk about this, and I think he would be capable of changing it. You wouldn't want to do it too drastically, too dramatically overnight, but I think he's, he would be capable of saying to the public, look, this is why you will see a little less of me than what you saw of other prime ministers, because basically I'll be busy and I'll be doing other things, but I, I, I will still be accountable, and, and it's important that they are. Um, but you know, when I worked for, for Bob Bork in the late 80s, uh, being accountable meant doing two or three radio interviews during the week, maybe one news conference a week. Now there are doorstops every day because they've got these mindless messages that they want to get out there. They're not announcing anything, they're just getting the slogans out and hoping that they get a run on television. And so I think the, somebody at some point with enough, enough authority, uh, and Turnbull would probably have it, has to at least try and reverse it. I think it's a little deeper than that too. I think one of Abbott's problems, separate to Gillard and Rudd, is that he doesn't seem to have any ideas. And so, <laughs> I, know, I mean, I know a liberal strategist who used to tell me about how Tony Nutt operated with John Howard, and he would get the year planner out and mark out every significant event. You know, Melbourne Cup, interest rates, employment numbers, those days were automatically gone. And what they would whittle down were the potential weeks of a year where if you wanted to place an issue on the agenda that you wanted substantial coverage of and discussion of in the community, these were the weeks to do it. And you know, I remember very vividly John Howard coming out and saying he wanted to do something about drought. And I remember a very long conversation about drought um, in the twilight of his prime ministership. We haven't seen Tony Ab Abbott emulate that, even though he is capable of reaching for the same advisors that advised John Howard. And I think it's actually deeper because I think Tony Abbott's actually either incapable or scared of having a longer discussion that is required, and he doesn't have anything to come out and put on the agenda. So that's why I think he does resort to this daily battle, even though when he started out, he said he didn't want to do this, and, and how easily he slipped back into that habit. There will be no senior members of the government appearing at this session. 
the, the press gallery in Canberra, to me, seem, uh, and, and it's partly what you've just started, Barry, and you've been responding to, um, seem totally co-opted to me. There's, there's this sort of relationship of complete dependence, almost. And um, Barry, you know, you've talked about what a, a leader might come in and do to, to unravel a bit, but <clears throat> journalists in Canberra, particularly, I'm talking about Canberra, uh, rely on their contacts. Uh, and, you, you know, you've all got your books of MPs that you know that will talk to you off the record, and it, it, it makes it so difficult, uh, I imagine, to come out then and be writing some of the pieces that you'd want to write. Tell me about that dependence. I think you've always got to approach your relationships with your sources as though if they were caught up in a scandal tomorrow and found to be doing wrongdoing, could you go in and honestly write the story? And I'm from the outset of the view that if that's what it, you know, if this happens, mate, you've got to expect that that's the story I'm going to be writing. So I would expect all my contacts would know that that attitude exists from the outset. What about, it's not a scandal though, it's about, it's about the day-to-day -day reporting of, of, of what, you, what you know. I mean, I don't think I hide anything personally, um, and I will more often than not tell my sources to their face what I think of their views or this is how I think it could play politically. So, in that respect, I don't think I, I feel complicit in anything or, or anything like that. In terms of um, the government, I mean, I can certainly assure you that Fairfax is in no way dependent or complicit with the PMO. They would be kind of lucky to speak to us <laughs> every week, you know, weekly. So, um, hands clean on that issue. There, there is, though, a problem right at the core of the way that uh, political journalism operates, and it goes to this point, and, and that is that News editors around the country, because of the commercial imperative, want their journalists to break stories. That's the most important thing to them, um, that they get ahead of their, their opponents. Now, in order to break stories, political journalists have to do deals with politicians. Now, they might deny they do deals, but they need the source and they need the stories, and in return for those stories, they do them favours. Um, some of the leading columnists will write glowing tributes to certain politicians who might leak to them. The most senior journalists do that. And I think that's, that's what gives it a bit of a problem at its core, is, is because journalists are compromised. And I don't think, it, it won't change because there is the commercial imperative there, but it should because it's not, um, uh, I don't think it's fair to the public. Uh, there's a lack of honesty about, um, about how these things are presented, if that's the case. I can give you an example of a, uh, of a prime minister who fronted the editor of a major newspaper at Kirribilli House. And this Prime Minister said to the editor, what do I have to do to get a fair go? And the editor said, you have to give us more stories. And the Prime Minister said, I just asked for a fair go. I'm not asking for favourable treatment. And to get a fair go, I have to give you stories. Now, that gives you a sense of, um, I think, how even at the top, um, what you read and what you see can be distorted because, of, um, because that situation exists. And that's changed over time. No, I think it's worse than ever. Yeah. I think it is worse than ever. I think that now entire news groups sign up to that kind of arrangement. Um, surely it's of no coincidence that um, the Australian breaks more stories uh, or given more stories than the other outlets because they give the government favourable treatment. It, it, it suits both of them. You just uh, mentioned uh, leaks, and uh, I wonder uh, from both of you about how important the leak is to, to, to media stories, and also if it's changed over time. I mean, we know there's always been leaks, but the dependence on it, and has there ever been as much leaking? Well, nothing like it. I mean, it's, it's, it's an epidemic now. <laughs> uh, it's, it's the way that governments operate now, that, that they, they strategically leak just about everything. Not mm. too many things are, are left to be announced anymore. Um, again, when, when I was working with the government, the problem was that, um, that 
enemies within the Campwood leak <laughs> uh, to damage the Prime Minister. And, and that was basically the only motivation behind the leaks back then. But now they're, they're orchestrated, and they're orchestrated by the, by the government at the, at, the, at the highest level. I mean, I'm sure you've been a recipient of them, Latiga, and that's, um, it, it's, it's quite a formal part of the process. How now. does it work? Well, what um, I think is more extraordinary is when you see stories about, you know, somebody, just say it's one side, a Liberal MP, that more often than not has come from the Liberals. And I think that with the rise of the career politician, the idea of a team as a government working together has lessened. And so I think that the leaks, particularly on a small scale, not necessarily at the cabinet level, even on, you know, in backbench party room, you can see who's trying to damage who with this leak. And so sometimes the leaks are, you know, I get rung a lot, oh, this happened in party room. And you check it out, you always check these things out with several different sources and you try and gauge them from different areas of the party so you can get a fair indication. And often it's somebody's interpretation of how they saw that person taken down or dressed down or whatever, and it didn't necessarily happen like that. So I think that that individualism in, in politics um, is also fostering that culture. Mm. Uh, technology, uh, of course, has uh, changed well beyond the recognition of anybody really probably over 30. Uh, tell us about, uh, Latika, you know, in your normal working day in Canberra, um, give, us a, give us an average day, the, the types of stories you're writing, the kind of media you're working with? So mainstream media is still, you know, predominantly my diet of news. And the first thing you do, obviously, when you wake up is check what all the um, papers have got and what you might be chasing today. But also, I find the most important aspect is the analysis and the editorials and the opinion. Because there, you know, what Barry was referring to, um, certain journalists are seen as spokespeople for this side of the party or this certain politician. So it's interesting to gauge what those people are feeding out and briefing. Can I just pause you right there and we'll get back to your, you know, morning coffee because you've already brought up two things that, you know, 30, 40 years ago wouldn't have existed. One is that you wouldn't have had all these other papers to read yet. You couldn't just get online and see what other journalists are saying. But you also didn't have the commentary and analysis, the, the amount of it that, that we have today. Is that a fair...? Yeah, it's far more diverse now, and it, it, it's spread right across the board. But as a result of, I think, uh, now that the social media is dominating ahead of uh, hard copy newspapers, is, is one aspect of that is that newspapers are now losing their ability to influence. The, the, the most, for a start, they haven't got anything like the readership they used to have in the hard copy. You, you, the, even the top newspapers are selling around 110,000 copies a day, whereas the hits on, online are in the millions. Yep. Um, so it's shifted to that area. But as a result, newspapers influenced by display and location with, with their stories and their headlines. And once that is no longer part of the equation, as people stop reading newspapers and go online, they're far more selective. And so they're, they're going to the story that they want. They're not being led there. Uh, by and large, and, and the newspapers haven't got the ability to say, wow, look at this, um, or run a campaign against somebody or a particular party. The last election we started to see, um, I think, a dissipation in the influence of the, uh, of the major newspapers. The Telegraph, for example, uh, ran quite a vicious campaign against the Labor Party in the, in the western suburbs of Sydney, and yet even though there was a swing against Labor across the board, their vote held up pretty well in western Sydney, which I think was one indicator that they're losing their influence. This next election will probably be the first election where I don't think the newspapers will have much of an influence over the vote at all, uh, because people now are far more selective uh, about how they, um, how they choose their, their, their coverage. Latika, back to you. And that's a, a great time to be in online news, which is where I work. Um, it is easily my favourite medium, working for online, and I find it extremely powerful. It's extremely, I think it's gaining the influence that newspapers used to have with the front page. Um, and I can tell you that the, the, within Parliament, that our website and the lead stories and what we run politically is very, very closely watched. They're very anxious about what we run. So online news is, is very much where it's at. But 
fast forward, you're still, you know, in politics, there's some old traditions, Fran at 7.30 a.m. Um, however, those things are less important than they were when I first started in the gallery. Now it's, it's even faster. Or the other thing I find really interesting in what's changed is because of the sheer volume in political stories that are now being covered, things get lost faster. And this is such a complex challenge for politicians in this age. It means that any reform conversation they want to have with the public has to start a lot earlier, um, and it has to be deeper and more meaningful and, and take place over so much more time than they perhaps would have allowed themselves a few years back. How many stories a day do you write? It depends. On a very busy day, maybe three or four, um, sometimes five. Um, but, you know, these are just short, sharp briefs about what's, what's happening today, and it can change. You know, just on that too, one other area is photography. Uh, because I was talking to Mike Bowers about this the other day, and he was saying that uh, 10 years ago, he would work all day to get one photograph published in the newspaper. And they were pleased that that happened. But now, it's because he operates across so many platforms, on a big day, he can get 60 photographs published somewhere, mm. whether it be on Facebook or Twitter or online or wherever. And so they get actually greater satisfaction out of the, the social media than they did uh, from seeing their, their papers and the hard copy, their photos and the hard copy of the newspapers, because so much more of their material is being seen. Mm. Fascinating. How much time every day do you spend talking to politicians? Not as much as I'd like. Um, a lot of the time you are taking in everything. And, you know, as I was saying, there is so much to take in. The sheer volume, you know, by the time the morning cycle is over, you've got the Sky News cycle at lunchtime, then you're moving into the afternoon cycle and the nightly cycle. So I think what was once one news day is probably, what, about three or four news days sometimes. And stories that a government tries to launch in the morning with all good intent, hoping it will end up on the news that night, can be completely derailed by one story you might break at 10 a.m. or 11, and, and that just pushes everything off. So it's almost like you've got these mini, mini cycles that you've got to keep, keep up with. It's very, very difficult. Mm. You, you um, in our correspondence leading to this event, you, you, you wrote something where you said that you, you say that audiences have more power now over what's commissioned and written than ever before. What do you mean by that? Well, the beauty of online is, unlike newspapers, we can tell what stories you're reading, how long you're spending on them, whether you're sharing it and sending it to your friends. So this is, you know, no... no um, condoning Kim Kardashian selfie stories, but if you choose to click on the Kim Kardashian selfie story and you spend longer reading that than a story on maybe dry housing policy and you share the Kim Kardashian story, guess what people think you're interested in? Guess what they're going to want to serve you up more of? That's actually a very powerful um, reason right now for audiences to be more engaged than they've ever been online. Because every time you click on a story that you see that has substance and you want to see more of that story, that is your way of telling editors what you'd like to see. And it's very powerful. But the flip side of that, of course, is that now that you know precisely how many, um, how many people are reading your stories, the editors know that as well. And they can judge what people want and who's delivering. Um, and when Lindsay Tanner wrote the book Sideshow, he talked about how the whole exercise had become more about entertainment now, and that people have a, a very low threshold for complicated, complex stories. And so that's what they're being fed, and the politicians have signed up to that. And, and so the, um, what you're getting now is a fairly... Um, I, I, you're not getting the in-depth coverage that you once got through the, through the, the social media. I think eventually people will, will stray towards um, what will separate some of these websites from others will be the quality of the analysis eventually, and that's what they will chase. At least I hope that's, that's the case. But in the meantime, we're being told through research that what they want is, is entertainment. And, and so that's what they'll be given. To me, that one of the biggest changes in political journalism and journalism full stop though is that it used to be that editors decided what an audience needed to hear, mm. see or read and now it's perfectly acceptable for a journalist to freely admit that 
uh, it's going to be dictated by by however many clicks. And mm. to me, the the there's a difference between being dictated and knowing, you know, audience mm. trends. So I mean, we still have these battles in the newsroom daily. You know, this is an important story about submarines policy. It might not click very well, but this is a reason why we should publish this story. You know, we, I've had that argument myself, and luckily prevailed. So we still have those battles, we still have those arguments, and, and more often than not, we are still, you know, the, the great beauty about online is there's plenty of space. You can put out these stories. Um, and let's be honest, dry policy stories, to be honest, don't get the same amount of clicks. By the way, it's, it's essentially your fault because Oscar Wilde said 120 years ago that the public has an insatiable appetite to know everything except what is worth knowing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's, I think, where we're being led right at the moment. I, I just think that balance has always existed and I think that tension will continue to exist. But there's a good way for people who are interested in seeing more serious things to make your voice heard. Uh, Barry, you, you have a um, sense of... Uh, somebody that's delighting, whose work is delighting you at the moment, who you, who you feel is, is really bringing all the goodness of modern uh, t uh, technology uh, with some old-fashioned real intelligence. Yeah, well, that gets back to then and now issue, I guess. But um, look, with a program like mine, you really have to, to keep doing new and interesting things. And luckily, He's not that person. Luckily, I'm surrounded by people who get that. <laughs> um, but you really do. I mean, you have to use, you have to be a part of the digital era and know how that's, that works for you. And I'll just give you, our, our numbers at Insiders are up 30% in the last two years after being on air for 14 years. So we're doing something right. We are staying, uh, um, staying in touch, I think, with what people want. Um, but one of the most interesting innovations we've had lately, we've got this young uh, video editor who's in his 20s, a guy called Hugh Parkinson, who came up with this idea of putting politicians and what they say into movies, into movie situations. Um, he did Christopher Pine, he had the fixer in, in a Star Wars situation. He had Tony Abbott as the best man at the wedding, at the four weddings and a funeral, announcing <laughs> knighthoods for Prince Philip. And it actually works a treat when you marry the two. And if you can get people who, who understand that, but what we want to do at the moment is to show you um, one that I think was the best piece of work that he's done so far, and it was the, the killing season, and he married the killing season uh, with the Breakfast Club. All right, people, we're going to try something a little different today. We are going to write an essay, no less than a thousand words, describing to me who you think you are. Think about why you're here. Ponder the error of your ways. I just wanted to get on with the job, but I think in Kevin's view in particular, uh, he preferred to do business that way. Uh, that is the most um, creative uh, reconstruction of the political memory I've ever heard. Um, Julia Gillard marches in and launches a leadership coup. My view was uh, Kevin uh, wasn't in the shape to fight a campaign. Uh, excuse me, fellas, I think we should just run our papers. The thing that's most painful through it all is just the, um, the active sense of betrayal. No, that's rubbish. But I imagine that's the sort of thing an assassin does say. Look, you guys keep up your talking and Vernon's going to come right in here. What's going on in there? You just bought yourself another Saturday. You through? No. Good. You got one more right there. Betrayal's pretty tough, mate. Another. There is nothing that should lead you to expect bastardry of that magnitude. Julia was my little deputy. And I didn't believe she would do that. I never did it either. Have you looked at where political parties have been at this point of the political cycle? We weren't running a government that was functioning the way it should. We're in a better position than Howard. We're in a better position than Keating. These kids, when you get old, you're going to be running the country. Kevin was very fragile in the face of uh, criticism. What's the matter? Are you going to cry? <laughs> Perfectly relaxed. Clearly, there's a, a hole uh, that needs to be filled by applause and approval. I haven't seen Julia's university qualifications as a psychoanalyst. You know, hard things happen. You can still make choices about how you conduct yourself.
So I think while there are people like that around, I'll, uh, I'll be okay for a while. But I'll just say about that period, the Julia Gillard period, what I really miss were those doorstops when she'd identify people's names and she would say Latika in three <laughs> very clear syllables. I think Latika. it was Latika. Latika. <laughs> uh, I know it was like the sound of fingernails down a blackboard, but <laughs> I really miss that. Um, this is a rare example in Australia, certainly compared to America, of, of a bit of satire, a bit of fun. Mm. Uh, in our, in our, we, we don't seem to, and the politicians here are absolutely humourless. Uh, I mean, we don't have the midwinter. I've never been to a, a midwinter ball here. It's one of my pathetic fantasies in life to go to one, uh, because interesting things happen, like the uh, Godwin Gretsch saga between Andrew mm. Charlton and Malcolm Turnbull. But uh, uh, but in even the, the correspondence dinner in the United States, the, the president is expected to get up and show a bit of wit. We're not very... We don't have a lot of humour, do we? I haven't actually heard one of those uh, speeches in a while, but the, um, they do OK, don't they? This is, we're great. I, I wish you could why see them. Why didn't you report them? We're not allowed. <laughs> we're not allowed. I don't know why they don't allow it. The yeah. Americans do. Um, uh, I think it would uh, do them all a credit. Um, Shorten's was fabulous and... Um, Abbott, oh, I, I don't think he'll mind if I repeat this one, but he got up and um, his first line was, oh, I've forgotten to bring my speech, but it's all right. I've dropped it to the Daily Telly and I've got it instead. <laughs> 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 Which I thought was pretty good. But you say they might be humorless, but they do have a sense of humour. I know that when uh, Hugh Parkinson did the, the, the piece on Christopher Pine and, and the fixer, he had it up on his website by 10.30 that morning. Mm. Um, so he enjoyed it. Mm. <laughs> Christopher Pine is probably one of the funniest people in Parliament. Mm. He, if you are in a bunker and the world is ending and you've got to choose one politician, it's probably him. One it's of our editors said one day, and he enjoys cutting up um, um, insider segments, and he said that um, when Christopher Pine gets to his feet, it feels like somebody's just handballed a Cyril Rioli. <laughs> I thought, mate, he's good, but he's not that good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, do, I do agree with you, though. I think satire is desperately missing, and I very much enjoyed The Chaser in the Howard years, and I thought there was something wonderful about that formula of The Chaser and, and John Howard's government. I didn't think The Chaser worked so much when Kevin Rudd came in, but I think we're missing that in Australia. I think we really miss, despite our irreverence, a good old rollicking laugh at these guys. We've got the weekly. It's going well. Hi, Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> what about um, the media as a pack, if, if this has changed? And um, a, a couple of examples come to my mind. One is the Godwin Gretsch, the, the whole affair with the God, Godwin Gretsch, which ended up being a bit of luck, as you write in your book, Barry, for Chris Yulman, who happened to be outside his house when the police actually turned up, but the rest of the pack, uh, up, and, up until that point, uh, had no idea that the email was, was concocted. So uh, another example is Richard Di Natale being elevated to the leadership of the Greens, that there was a, a sense from the media that it was somehow undemocratic, uh, and that was really because they didn't know that that was what <laughs> was going to happen. And in fact, to not leak for the, the media not to be in the know is somehow undemocratic. A crime, Sally, a crime. Indeed. Uh, but I think a, a, a crime for which um, the reader or the viewer or the listener pays dearly. Yeah, some of the biggest stories, though, that have broken have been through luck, just sheer luck. Chris Yulman was having a conversation with Bill Shorten at the coffee shop at about 6 o'clock the night the first Leadership Challenge story broke, and it's just something that Shorten said to him and said, what do you think would happen? if we were to replace Kevin with Julia. And he said it in such earnest tones and was whispering that Yulman thought it's, it's got to be happening. He wouldn't have, and, and they made a few calls and they, they established that indeed it was. Um, one of the biggest breaks of all time is when Laurie Oakes um, got the jump on a John Howard budget. Mm -hmm. And what happened there was that a cameraman called Phil Laurent was having a drink at one of the pubs in, uh, in Richmond and this guy from the printing office said, I could get you the budget, mate. And he said, let me get back to you. And he went and saw Laurie Oakley. He said, I just met a bloke in the pub who said he could get me the budget. And Laurie said, go and get the budget. <laughs> <laughs> and Phil went and got it. And uh, Laurie got the award. <laughs> but that's how it happens. It's, it's, sometimes it's quite straightforward. Mm, and that would always have been true. Yeah. Mm. What do you think about this pack 
mentality? I think the, pack, the packers and mentality has really changed in Canberra. When I first joined um, at 2UE, you know, you're rounding up, you're getting at 7am, you're rounding up what's on the front pages. These are our lead stories. And we always kind of used to follow what was on the front pages of the newspapers, back to kind of what Barry was saying a bit earlier. And then I noticed around 2010, and, and my own personal view of this is that it coincided when the Oz started campaigning on BER. And I felt at that point, the Oz was a paper that everyone used to always run, you know, follow its front page stories, because they usually have very good yarns. Once they turned into the campaign, that began to change, and I felt its influence in, in dominating the rest of the news agenda really ebbed away a bit there. And it's never quite recovered. With fewer journalists in the press gallery, you get two effects. One is that um, there's not enough time to follow up all these paper stories, so they often get lost. And the other thing is that when there's a really big story, everyone's on it. So then other stories that in the olden days, I reckon, probably would have gotten reported around the edges, don't get, get told because everyone is so consumed by the Dyson Hayden scandal or someone is so consumed by the Godwin Gretsch affair that the, the peripheral stories don't get as told as much. So that's partly, I think, the commercial reality of shrinking media and, and yeah. wish it wasn't that way. And you can't sit on these stories anymore and, and don't be shy about your role on the Dyson Hayden uh, story, that the, the, how that broke, but explain, explain now that once you get hold of a story like that, you've just got to go with it straight away. Yeah, um, so I got a tip about that um, around 9.30, 9.35, and luckily Fairfax is one of the few bureaus that still employs a researcher. So uh, Fergus is this great guy, and he's, he's so dynamic, sits across from me, and I literally got this tip and yelled out, Fergus, I need you to ring Turk right now. These are the questions, one, two, three, four, five. So he was able to do that while I was able to literally start belting out my script because the actual processing time to get this on the web takes a, a couple of minutes. So in between waiting for the Royal Commission to get back to us, I was terrified, ever since Godwin Gretsch, I'm terrified that stuff comes to me and it's forged. So the first thing I did was called the Bar Association, called New South Wales Libs, tried to call this guy who was on the invite. Nobody would answer my calls. Nobody would verify that this leaflet was legit. I completely trusted the source, but you've always got to double check these things. So we spent a good half an hour, and in between this time, we had the feed up of Turk, and Hayden kept going out. And we're like, he knows, and he's not telling us that he knows we know, and he's not giving us a comment. And as it subsequently turned out, at 9.23, he'd pulled out of this event, and we first called him at 9.35. So we were terrified that he was going to come in and say to the Royal Commission, this has happened, I pulled out of this event, and there goes our great story. Luckily, he didn't do that, and I'd had enough soundings from a, a few other sources in New South Wales to go, okay, the, I think this event is absolutely legitimate. He was going to do this. Let's go with the story. And then it was only after we'd published that the Royal Commission got back to us and gave us the statement that prior to any media inquiry, we'd already pulled out of the event. Well, mm. why couldn't you tell us that? Yeah. Uh, Barry, uh, tell us about your, your views on privacy issues uh, then and now. Yeah. Uh, uh, Privacy is really interesting because um, it's, there's this sense around that it's harder for politicians now than it ever was um, because there's this intrusion into their private lives. And, and the reason that I, that I found that um, Oscar Wilde quote before was because I was looking up, I knew that he had said something about privacy, and it's fascinating now when you go back 120 years, and he said that centuries ago the public nailed the ears of journalists to the pump. Now that was hideous, he said. But it's worse now, journalists have nailed their own ears to the keyholes. Mm. Now, he said that 120 years before the, um, uh, before the Murdoch phone hacking scandal <laughs> in the UK. So I think that gives you a sense that this, this idea that somehow journalists intrude into the private lives of everybody, but politicians in particular in, in, in our case, is not new. It's always been around. Uh, you might remember the Laurie Oak story about Gareth Evans and Cheryl Curnow, and there was a big argument then as to whether or not uh, he was justified in writing about that. So even though it's, it's a modern-day complaint from politicians, and even Bob Hawke just recently said that that's part of the reason why they haven't got quality politicians anymore, because they're afraid to go into the parliament and have their private lives exposed. But 
Nothing's changed on that front. It's, it's always been thus, and I don't think they can use that as an excuse. I've got views as to whether or not we go overboard, and I think we do. Um, um, even with the, the Laurie Oak thing, I can see where he came from, but I'm still not convinced that it was, um, that it was justified. Um, but um, but it, it's, not, it's not a new thing, um, but it's still something that we really should deal with very, very sensitively. Mm. Uh, if you've got a microphone, yes, over there. Thank you. Uh, thanks for a very interesting uh, conversation. Um, what about metadata? How do you feel about um, the what seems to me to be the democratisation of, uh, of it in, with it that's happening within this country with a number of laws that are being passed at a number of levels, but particularly metadata? Sorry, the what? The... Sorry, can you just repeat that again? I was wondering what your opinions are about metadata and the, the way in which journalists might be compromised and also the way their sources might be compromised. Yeah, I think it's a real concern. Um, and I'm always conscious. I have several self-destruct apps. Anyone who would like to contact me through those, feel free. Um, because, you know, I'm, I'm very conscious all the time that every call, every message can potentially be um, retrieved. Uh, I don't personally agree with the metadata storage laws, but the truth is they're already happening. And I do think that despite our concerns, um, as a, as a populace, that when the law authorities really want to do something in the name of terror, they're going to go down that road anyway. Probably not tell us about it. And when the government says it's not aimed at journalists, you know, that, that's, it's one thing to say that, and it's not, strictly speaking. Of course, they're after the terrorists, but journalists are going to be caught up in it. You know, when they say that they, um, um, that they now think that unless you're in, directly impacted by some development somewhere, then you're not entitled to use the law and go to the courts and challenge it, um, again, they, they, that, that may work politically for them, but think about the implications of that, 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 that no matter what the situation, would, would the Franklin Dam have been stopped in Tasmania if the mainland didn't get interested in the issue? Um, so there are always these knock-on effects, and you can't take politicians on, their, uh, uh, on, on face value. If, if the potential is there to, to restrict the activities of journalists who are just going about doing, doing their job, then we ought to be very, very conscious of that. Self-destruct apps. <laughs> I thought only politicians had those and you didn't need a phone for them, but I'm learning a lot today. Next question, up the back there. Uh, hi. Um, a significant number of the half a million Ashley Madison, uh, Australian Ashley Madison uh, people have .gov.au uh, email addresses. Are any of your colleagues sifting through those? And is that actually news or does it depend on whether these are people that have... Um, you know, campaigned on family values, whether it's news or not. You know, I think, can I, can I take this one? I think that's a really interesting um, uh, snapshot or vignette of where we're at as a society, because even if we as newsmakers didn't determine that that was in the public interest, you as internet users are still as free to go and search that, look at all those mirrored sites, find out if your loved ones are on there, just as well as we are. And this is an incredible time to be in journalism where we still, I think, try to make these judgment calls. We don't always get them right. But the technology has leapfrogged us and people's individual own desires also leapfrogs what the media might do and might make a judgment call on. So it's almost a redundant question in many ways because the truth is anyone can go out and have a look on those sites. I just wonder, though, what attitude the media is taking to this. I know that they're pleading with the media organisations not to go down that path and to just ferret through all of this material and find out whose names are mentioned. My suspicion would be that some of the news organisations would go through the process just to see what they find, and then they'll make the judgement about whether they run with it or not. That, that's my suspicion, but, but let's just see. And then they would justify the publication on the, on the basis of hypocrisy. There's already been that one case in the United States where a guy has been pinged on, on, the, on that basis that, that he's a hypocrite. Um, so we'll see which way they go on this. But um, you know, as, as we've seen, it's, it's, it's tantalising stuff and the, the media will be tempted. And it is difficult to justify using your... If, if you use, are stupid enough to use your public work address, publicly taxpayer-funded address, very difficult to justify that. I think most people would say you'd be more stupid using your private one at home. <laughs> <but> <laughs> Next question. Um, up here. Oh. 
Uh, yeah, so a big change in recent decades has been the decline of membership of political organisations, so the Labor Party, Liberal Party, National Party, all, all sides. And I wonder about, when I see politicians, I wonder if they're not trying to use the media to compensate for the fact that they don't have that long-term, rich party loyalty conversation um, that, that that party membership would imply. And so I feel like that's the obsession with the polls. You know, you could read your, read which way things were going when you had more members out there, you know, um, both having that conversation in the community and, and feeding it back to politicians. So I just wonder if anyone's got a thought on sort of how that's impacting on the conversation by the media. Yeah, well, the figures certainly support the point you're making. It's probably 20 years ago, more than 80% of Australians were tied to one of the major political parties. Now that number is probably a little over 60%. And even there, I think there'd be some movement between the parties, uh, depending on circumstances of the time and the, and the, and the quality of the leadership and, and so on. So that's, that's, that makes political parties a whole lot more nervous now about the polls than ever before, uh, because they know there's this uh, potential for people to, to move quite rapidly um, across the aisle. Um, say there's an overreaction to polls, and perhaps there is, um, and that's both by media and, and, and the politicians, but the reality is that the polls give, um, and so does their own research, give, give politicians a sense of where they're at, and if they feel as if they can't win the next election, um, they're not going to go quietly. Um, they will do, they'll take drastic measures in order to, um, um, in order to try and turn things around, and, and that's the Australian system. It's not like the American system where you're locked in for four years. They can change leaders at any time, and so because they can, they do. I think as our generation, our generation is much more fluid in the concept of identity and who we belong to. So I think it was always going to be a challenge for the political parties to attract members. That's different in attracting support. And one of the reasons why I think the parties are struggling so badly is because I'm not sure what they mean anymore, particularly Liberal and Labor. You know, what does Bill Shorten's economy look like? What does he want the country to look like? He's starting to talk about it a bit, but in my view, hasn't done enough to really outline that. Um, now, he's got some time, so we'll see. Tony Abbott, well, might, I mean... He might not have much time. <laughs> he might not have much time. <laughs> Do you Tony think he Abbott does? I mean, this is an interesting comment from you as he, an insider. You he think he's is got it? a supposed Liberal Prime Minister doing fundamentally anti-Liberal things, raising taxes. What do these people mean? And I think, you know, this idea that they've got to win the daily cycle pushes them into not meaning or standing for anything. And I think that that's a, a big inherent problem with political party membership at the moment. And I know also from personal experience and the people I've spoken with who uh, try and get active in political parties, and so often it's the case that they, they join the Liberal Party and then find their membership is far more conservative. Mm -hmm. Than, than they realised, far more conservative than Liberal voters. And likewise, the Labor Party, they go to these meetings and they find that the membership is far more left-wing than they are. And so they, they don't find that being a member of the party is where they want to be. It's, it's, it's not the reflection that, they, that they'd expected. Mm. Same with the Greens. I mean, they, they, you go along to a, a Greens meeting, you expect to meet Richard Dintali at every second seat, you're not going to meet him. <laughs> That's not the nature of it. Mm. Yes, up here in the back. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, um, <clears throat> sorry. I just had a bit of a worry before when you mentioned clicking on the internet, especially, you know, people who click on to see Kim Kardashian, how <laughs> big her bum is, that um, it's the younger generation doing that and the older generation aren't as big numbers like the younger generation, so there's a distortion there. But my biggest worry is um, the ABC and Tony Abbott putting the boots into the ABC because it's one of the one TV stations where you can get some real news, ad-free. We're going to need a question, please. Yeah, OK. My, all right, Tony Abbott and the ABC. And I, can we crowdfund that if he does, you know, take too much funding away? That's my worries. Yeah, I, I, don't the ABC. Think, I don't think we should be too worried about it. Um, the ABC has, has come under pressure from uh, politicians on all sides for a very long time. Um, when I worked for Bob Hawke, he got upset over the coverage of the Gulf War, and, um, and David Hill was the CEO of the ABC at the time, and what struck me as quite extraordinary was when Hawke called him in, David Hill did almost all of the talking and berated the bloke. 
um, and, and walked out of there. And I, I, I have to say, at the time, I admired, I admired him <laughs> for the approach that he took. It was a, it was a gutsy effort. Um, these days, I think the ABC, it was the right thing to do to take Q&A out of television programming and give it to news, in, in my view, because I think it's, it is a, a news and current affairs program, and that's where it belongs. And I think the people who are attuned to the kind of issues that are going to arise, um, the difficulties that might emerge in the production of a program like that, I think journalists are more attuned to it than program makers, and so the program will be better off for being under that banner. The pity is that Abbott demanded it. And then, of course, we acquiesced. And it didn't look good. It looked as if, at the first opportunity, we caved into Tony Abbott. It should have been a decision that was taken independently by the ABC some time ago. Um, my, quest my question is, um, the sort of in-depth political sort of analysis that goes on, I love it. Um, but is it just a small um, part of Australia that does like it? Um, for example, I've got my families, I've got my parents are sort of working class and they'll never vote anything other than Liberal because they say that, um, you know, Labor's terrible with money and, you know, you've got to be careful. I've got a brother that's um, well, I think we've, we've got the question. We're almost out of time and I want to take one more. So I think this is was the question? probably you. So the, the question is, do slogans work better than for a lot of Australians than in-depth analysis? Yeah, and you're talking about how the modern media deals with this, and I've only been on Twitter for about uh, four weeks, so I'm, I'm, I'm very new to it. But what, what I've gathered from it already, I think, is that, um, sure, people look for analysis through it, but, but I think people of common views cluster together. Um, it's, it's a very sort of uh, partisan um, way that people behave. I think they look to have their prejudices reinforced rather than search for alternative views. So I'm not sure that at this point it has the kind of influence that people think. But, but as for the, the slogans, uh, I just hope they don't work. I really do, because it's um, po politics and, and governing the country has been reduced to, th to three-word slogans. Malcolm Turnbull's been strong on this, um, and, and let's hope that he's right, and, and that if somebody else gets a crack at it one day, that they, that they learn the lesson and they move on and start talking with a bit of substance. And the very first part of the question, Latika, is, is it just a small part of the population that are interested? Not at all. Um, we have excellent readership at the Sydney Morning Herald, and when Harcher writes a great analysis piece, um, it can top our readership for weeks and months sometimes. So, no, I think there is a very broad interest, and on slogans, I don't think that that is what the population is interested in at all. And that's why I think they're tanking in the polls because that's what they keep serving up to us, and everyone keeps going, we are not this stupid. Last question. Um, you've talked a lot about the changed relationship between the media and politicians, and how close they are, and how people feed stories, and how editors make decisions based on which politicians are going to give them stories. And we seem to have a growing trend of one-term governments in this country, because there are so many stories now. And I just wonder if politicians and journalists are in some kind of democracy death spiral that no government is going to be around long enough to actually do anything anymore. Yeah. Is that too pessimistic? Uh, no, and it's the uh, <laughs> it's a result of the 24-hour news cycle now dominating everything. That, the, the, that there is greater pressure on on the political class right across the board. Though that's not the only reason why we're changing governments like we change socks, because um, we, we had the, the uh, we had periods of good government. We, we had after Menzies, we had a, a, a rocky period, and then you sort of had that grey period of, uh, of Whitlam and, and and Fraser. But then we had a strong period of government. We had Hawke, Keating, and Howard. And now we're going through a bad patch. And I just, it, I'm hoping that a cyclical, and at some stage, a leader will emerge. I don't know who that might be, but a leader will emerge that will take us out of this. And once again, we'll get a bit of stability. But it is harder than ever um, because of the cycle. But it doesn't have to be that hard if the politicians just resisted it and didn't sign up to every, every stunt that the media puts before them. All right, we've, um, we've got to wrap it up. Just super quickly, Barry, is there a piece of political journalism from Australia that you just wish had been yours from any time? I wish I'd been born John Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> I would have had a lot of fun being John Stewart. Latika? 
I, I have not had time to prepare for that question. There are too many, probably. Fair enough. Too many too. options. Uh, it's been a really interesting uh, conversation, and uh, you've been a terrific audience. Uh, please thank Latika Burke and Barry Cassidy. And big thanks to you too, Sally. I'll keep this brief because we're coming back to you very soon with another episode of the Fifth Estate from Melbourne Writers' Festival. But I did just want to remind you that there are lots more discussions about politics and media at our website, wheelercentre.com. Next up, we'll hear from journalists Jamie Tarabay and Sally Neighbour about Islamic State and the stuff we haven't quite understood about the workings and ambitions of the so-called death cult. Stay tuned and thanks for listening to The Fifth Estate. Thank you.